if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the uh, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians? We're going to be looking at, I'm going to be reading from chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 14. The title of the sermon this evening is, Salvation is of the Triune God. So that's the epistle to the Ephesians, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the, sorry, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward it in all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him, he also, sorry, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14 who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. We do not have to be like the world world where we are ambiguous on truth. But Lord, when you speak from your word, we don't have to wonder. This is the truth. And Father, we confess that we do not tremble before your word enough, Lord. Your word is holy and it is the living and breathed word of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may when we approach it, approach it in reverence. As when that is read word for word, that is the only thing that is infallible. We all here are fallible. But Lord, we pray by your goodness and by your grace, you will protect the words of of this preacher here to say which is only pleasing in your sight. And Lord, may your saints here be edified. And Christ Jesus, may you be glorified to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This evening we are going to be looking at a very vast topic. We're going to be looking at the Trinity 
in salvation. The Trinity is something I must admit I absolutely do love to study. I love how God has revealed himself over a period of time in the Holy Scriptures that he is in fact one in being and three in divine person. It really does pain me today to see the lack of emphasis on the nature of God in our sermons, as this doctrine of the Trinity, not only is it essential to our faith, it is completely unique to Christianity. No other religion claims what we claim about God. Many, many religions claim to be monotheist, the belief in one God. Yet we as Christians are the only ones who, while affirming to be monotheists, yet we proclaim that God has revealed himself in three divine persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one in essence, co-equal and co-eternal. In fact, I strongly believe that if we deny this doctrine, the whole of Christianity falls apart. It is the cornerstone of what we believe. If we are people who deny the doctrine of the Trinity, all of what we hold dear comes tumbling down and leaves us most to be pitied among men. Some of you may be saying, well, what do you mean by that? Here is just a short example. If the doctrine of the Trinity is false, then Jesus, in fact, was not God. And if he was not God, he could not bear the full wrath of his father, meaning that you and I are still in our sins. Not only that, if the Holy Spirit was not a divine person, then he could not raise Jesus from the dead. And if Paul, and Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are to be most pitied among men. Brethren, our eternity hangs in the grasp of this doctrine. If we are indeed wrong on this doctrine, the Muslims and the Orthodox Jew are right. We are idolaters. But if this doctrine, which is revealed so clearly in scripture, is true, it is one of the most, if not the most glorious truths that we will ever delve into. It is not, and I will repeat this, it is not a secondary issue. It is not a secondary issue. And it certainly is not a secondary issue with regards to the doctrine of salvation. The salvation of our souls is Trinitarian. I hope that we realize, brethren, that salvation is not just a work of one person of the Godhead. God the Father is Savior. In the passages which we have just read from verse 3 to 6, Paul is proclaiming how the Father is Savior. God the Son is Savior. As we read verses 7 to 12, Paul tells us how the Son, Christ himself, is Savior. God, the Holy Spirit, is Savior. Paul tells us in verses 13 and 14 how the Holy Spirit is Savior. In fact, the Apostle Paul in this passage we have just read 
with this doctrine of the Trinity in mind, is actually breaking out into worship and adoration of what God has done in salvation of of vile sinners such as we. That is why, my brethren, theology is not just for smart academics, but all who claim the name of Jesus Christ. The deeper our study of theology should always lead to a greater doxology of praise and worship. When we look at this doctrine and the work God has done for vile sinners such as us, we will not be big-headed academics, puffed-up people, but men and women who have tears in our eyes, praising our triune God. Let us not be guilty of so many today of neglecting theology. We as Christians are commanded to grow in the knowledge of who God is. Guess what? That's theology, the study of God. If we are Christ's, we are theologians by default. Jesus said, did he not, in John 17, and this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So knowing God, brethren, is essential to salvation. Not only that, I truly do believe that having a proper knowledge of the Trinity in salvation will lead us into a greater height of the assurance of the love of God for us personally. Understanding the doctrine of the Trinity is, sorry, neglecting the doctrine of the Trinity is catastrophic to our walk with the Lord. If I did have many weeks on this particular passage, I could be here for maybe eight or 10, maybe 11 sermons, extracting from this text the richness of each verse, but I don't have that time. So we will literally be scratching the tip of the iceberg this evening. My aim, my aim this evening is not so much to fill your head with knowledge and go away from church this evening going saying, "Mm, that was very interesting. My aim this evening is by God's grace and help for you to walk away praising God for the great things he has done for us. So if you're in Christ this evening, knowing more of what the Lord's involvement is in your salvation should lead you to a greater love for him and an endeavor to walk with him in holiness and to the praise and glory of his great name. So let us delve into this together. If you're taking notes, my first point or my first heading, what is salvation was God's plan. Salvation was God's plan. Before we go any further, I must for a moment start by saying this. If we do not understand that salvation was planned or foreordained, we will inevitably go wrong from there. One of the things that is absolutely rife in the modern church is the view that salvation is reactive. God is reacting to us. Salvation in modern day evangelicalism is preached as if God has his hands tied behind his back, waiting for sinners to find him. The gospel is proclaimed, depicting Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, as a weak 
beggar. And sinners are just breaking his heart because they won't acknowledge him. Let me just say this. Our God and the Lord Jesus Christ are no weak beggars. Does not the word of God tell us that our God is mighty to save and that the Lord's arm is not shortened that he cannot save? It is because we have so minimalized the sovereignty of God in the modern day. We have made our focus more upon our feelings and how man-centered we want to be instead of the one who more praise and honor and glory is due. To start to see the glory of this salvation, we must start where the apostle Paul does here. That our salvation is God ordained. We read in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. As I have said, verses three to six is speaking of God the Father as saviour. Paul starts by giving us a real insight into the mind of God. The great apostle is telling these Ephesians that God the Father has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And those blessings are found in Christ. There is no blessing outside the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is the one from whom all blessings flow, but they are only flowing to those who are found in his dear son. No Christ, no blessing from the Father. Paul then goes on to tell us something that is absolutely wonderful. He is telling these Ephesians that God the Father, before the foundation of the world, before the words of let there be light were uttered, that he had chosen them to be partakers of this salvation. The word in Greek chose literally means to pick out of the bunch. This isn't a random selection, but it is an intentional action by God himself. And then he says, having chosen us, he has predestinated us or predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself. Theologians call this the redemptive covenant of God. What is that? In eternity past, there was a great council in the heavens and each person of the Trinity chose the role which they would take in redemptive history. Within this council, the Father has chosen a people that would inherit salvation. And these people he has given to his son to redeem from sin and the consequences of the fall. Now, some people try and deny this particular doctrine because there isn't an explicit uh, phrase or passage of scripture that say that this council take place. Yet, if we are people who take scripture seriously, we have no choice, brethren, but to adopt that this event happened 
in eternity past. Not only do we see it from this passage we have just read, but here are a few passages from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John 6, 37. All that the Father have given me will come to me. And, I, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I, Jesus, have come down to do the, I have, sorry, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 44 tells us plainly that no one can even come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then John 17, in that great high priestly prayer of our Lord, he says this, I have glorified you on the earth. And then he says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. These are just three scriptures of so many that clearly show that before the foundation of the world, there has been an agreement, a covenant made between the Father and the Son in respect to salvation. The Father chose a people and the Son has been sent accomplishing the task that has been sent him to do, to redeem those people whom the Father has given. Brethren, this is absolutely wonderful. Why? This, if you are in Christ, should be ringing sweet in your ear this evening. If you're unclear why, let me give you the reason to bring it home to you. If you are in Christ this evening, you yourself will know the plague of your own soul. You will know the rebellion that which still to a degree surges within you. And I'm sure you can recount the multitude of sins which make you recoil in guilt and shame. Yet, yet, before the foundation of the world, the omniscient, omnipresent God, who knows the end from the beginning, knew all your crimes that you would commit against him. He knows all about your cosmic treason, which demands his just and holy indignation. Yet even with that knowledge of the one, or even with all the knowledge of what you have done, you here today, if you're in Christ, chose to be a partaker of this great salvation. In that great council, before time was, your name, yes, your name, sounded forth in the very courts room of heaven and the Father chose you to be his own. Get your head around that. I have seriously no idea why so many Christians are so hostile to this particular doctrine. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Some of you may be saying, well, why, why, did, he, why did he choose me? Was it something in me? Did he, did he see a little speck of goodness in me somewhere? I can say with absolute certainty, brethren, it was absolutely nothing he saw in you and me. That would leave room for boasting. But Paul tells us in Romans 8, 29, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
Now, if we know anything about the word for now or for new, Adam knew Eve. It is something that is intimate. A better translation is for loved. If you're in Christ this evening, the father loved you before the foundation of the world and he chose to set his love upon you. That's it. Nothing in you because he loved you. Nothing in you drew him to you. He set his everlasting love upon you. It started with him. It will end with him and it will go into eternity with him. And this, my friends, should bring you the greatest of assurance. As we understand that the great work of salvation never, ever depended upon you. So why do we think that there is something we will do where the good, loving Father should give upon us? I'm not saying let us sin that grace may abound. The regenerate heart can't utter such blasphemies. Yet the truth still remains. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God the Father, so out of his great love for you, sprang forth the plan of redemption, choosing the worst that humanity has to offer to bring praise and glory to his great name. If we just try and contemplate this for a while, it will destroy any pride in us. I've heard people before who I've explained this to, and they say, I bet this makes you rather feel rather special and puffed up, thinking that God has chose you above another. I would say this, though. If that is your reaction here this evening, I would say examine yourself. As this does not puff up, But when we see something of who we really are before God, and yet we see that God loved me in spite of me, it should make us like the Apostle Peter when he saw our Lord and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But yet God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. By name, you are mine. So we have seen how the the father's dominant role in salvation. We have seen that he is the author of the redemptive plan, choosing the elect before the foundation of the world. We now move on to the second person, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads me to my second point. Redemption through his blood, if you're taking notes, that's the title of the second point. Redemption through his blood. We move swiftly on to verse 7, which reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now, when we come to verse 7 to 12, as I have said, this is describing God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ's role in salvation. So we have seen how the Father in this great council has chosen the elect. But we also need to acknowledge this, that our triune God, who knew, sorry, our triune God, we must acknowledge that he knew before the foundation of the world, before he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, that ultimately mankind would fall into sin. Consequently, 
needing to be redeemed. Some of you may even have the question, well, if God is sovereign and he determines all that is to pass, why did he allow man to fall into such a state? Now, the answer we are not really given in scripture. I do, however, have my opinions, but I am not here to preach to you my own opinion here this evening. So when the word of God is silent, I must also be silent as well. But we know that God was not surprised by the fall. And as the redemptive plan, remember, was before the foundation of the world. So with this knowledge that man would inevitably fall and consequently the whole of Adam's race, the whole of the human race, God's elect needed to be redeemed. You and I, brethren, have not only inherited the sin of Adam, but we have totally ruined ourselves in the sins and rebellion which we have committed against Almighty God. No amount of restitution, no amount of keeping God's law will suffice. God's holy wrath against our sin. Absolutely nothing we can do can atone for our great rebellion. And this is the great problem. We needed a substitute who was spotless in the eyes of God. Not only did we need a substitute, but we needed one who could bear the full wrath of God for the whole of God's elect. So one had to be of infinite worth. The problem is, as we know in Romans 3, there is non-righteous, no, not one. And we have all become worthless, as it says in Romans 3, and unprofitable. That is why God had to take such drastic action. I wonder if we ever think about this. Our salvation could come in no other way apart from God the Son. The second person of the Blessed Trinity had to take on flesh and he had to make himself subject to the very law that he created. And the one who flung the stars into the heavens had to be nailed to the tree that he created. Jesus being fully God was the only one of infinite worth who could bear the full force of the father's wrath against sinners. And because he was fully man, he could make, he could be the perfect representative before the throne of grace. This is why we can have no fellowship with the cults as the Jesus who is not the Jesus of the New Testament and of scripture. The second person of the blessed Trinity cannot fulfill this. He cannot be the one who can make perfect propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be fully God so he could bear the full wrath of God and because of his infinite worth. And he had to be man, otherwise he could not be our substitute. I wonder if we ever think how drastic that was. God the Son, the one who at this moment in time is, is surrounded by the heavenly host singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Had to humble himself. He who was rich became poor, that we may be rich. The Lord Jesus, out of his great love for you and I here today, exhausted the full wrath and justice of his father. Why? Why did he do such a thing? Because God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us.
In that great council, God the Son saw all your sin. He saw all my sin. He saw all our sin from the moment that we are born to the moment that we are put in the grave. And he paid every last might. So we today can be justified before the Father and all our sin and guilt are dealt with, completely dealt with. The problem is, brethren, the problem is, that there are some here today who need to start believing that. It is so hard seeing Christians who Christ has redeemed live under constant condemnation over past sin. It is absolutely finished. Absolutely finished. Listen, brethren, Christ paid too much for you to live with your head in the sand. And again, if you think I'm saying, let us sin, that grace abound, you are not hearing me. I'm saying this, Christian, Christ redeemed one, you are free. All your crimes in the past and in the present and the future have been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, being God, knew all the crimes which he had to pay for. He didn't go on that cross and anything that was laid upon him was a surprise to him. Nothing you've done was a surprise to Christ. But yet, because of his great love for you here today, he willingly let the Romans nail him to a cross and he willingly had the Father's wrath poured upon him. He knew how much it would cost him, brethren. He knew how much it would cost him. But because of his dear love for you today, saint, he would rather himself endure and exhaust the full wrath of his Father So you today may be a redeemed child of God. But some of you may be saying, well, I failed him too many times, surely. Surely there's no hope for me. Surely I have gone one step too far. My case is too far gone. What hope is there for me? I said it in a prayer. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. My little children, I write to you that you sin not. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for your sin here today. Always go back to him. Always run to him. No matter how many times you may fall, the righteous man may fall seven times, but what does he do? He rises again. Christ has made propitiation for you, my brethren. If there be any here today who say, I've just blown it, run to him. For he says, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Never stop going to him. His blood has made perfect propitiation for you this evening. Which leads me to my last And final point, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So now we come to the third person in the Godhead, the divine person which I believe in the vast majority of Christendom in the day we live is totally misunderstood. First, I must emphasize that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Many upon many people talk about the Holy Spirit as if he's just a mere force that comes from the Father or the Son. That's heresy. The Holy Spirit is God himself, the third person of the Godhead, 
and he is just as much involved in the redemption of our souls than the Father and the Son. Remember, brethren, we do not worship three gods. We worship one God, one being and three divine persons and all the divine persons work in complete harmony together. So when we see things in the modern day Christianity that turns the Holy Spirit into a mere emotion factory, we must be very much concerned of what we are seeing. The Holy Spirit takes a vital role in our salvation. As when we go back to that great council, which we looked at in the redemptive covenant of God, the Holy Spirit was the one who took the role of the one who applies our salvation. You see, at the fall, brethren, we didn't just become sinners. We didn't just become people who sin, but we became by nature sinners. We didn't become 50% good and 50% evil. At the fall, we became completely ruined, dead in trespasses and in sins and unable to respond to the gospel. And I say it's as drastic as this. Even if the Father and the Son fulfilled their roles within the redemptive plan, without the work of the third person of the Blessed Trinity, we would refuse to acknowledge the great work done for us. Brethren, I know this is an unpopular opinion in the day we live, but we're not born neutral to God. We hear many people in the open air who say, oh, well, I'm not against Christianity. It's just not for me. But then you mention Christ and hostility comes just like that. Because we are, as Romans 1 says, born God-haters, hostile and at enmity to God. And this is the state of every man and woman born of natural generation. All are born God-haters. So the question is this for you. If that is our state, and that is the state of every man and woman, How can anybody repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and receive this salvation? And this, my friends, is why I must, I must take the stance that regeneration precedes faith. Being born again comes before we have faith. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who takes out our God-hating hearts and regenerates us into new creations in Christ. Ezekiel talks about this. He says, I will give, this is God speaking about the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. Notice the word cause. This isn't something from our our own free will. This is something that God is doing without our consent by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit first must do this to someone before he can have any affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need God, the Holy Spirit, to drastically change us. And once that has taken place, it is only then that sinners like you and I can have a convicting work. We can have that convicting work of the Spirit, see our absolute helpless estate 
And then the Holy Spirit points us to the one, Jesus Christ, who made propitiation for us. That one who we go to will give us rest. And then, as it says in verse 14 and 13 and 14, that he seals us till the day of redemption. Brethren, we often miss this out. We often miss this out, the, the great work of God. If a man is dead in sins, how can he turn to God in faith and how can he love the one he's born to hate? It is only because God first loved you that you can love him because he saw your estate and he dove down from, he dove from heaven to earth and he picked your dead corpse up and breathed life into it that he then you saw your need for Christ. That is the work that God has done. Brothers, sisters, salvation is a complete work of the Trinity. There is no getting around it. And as I have said, God the Father is the one who chose you before the foundation of the world, loved you, loved you, and gave you to the Son who loved you. And the Son accomplished your salvation. And the Holy Spirit who loved you, raised you from death into life. And is now changing you by sanctification, one degree of glory to another. Call that Calvinism, call it what you want. But I have not quoted John Calvin or a reformer. All I have brought you today is the word of God. And I just want to say this before I finish. Any other view of salvation makes the Trinity at odds with one another. Let me just give you an example. If the Father has elected, as we have seen, Jesus is trying to save everyone, and the Holy Spirit is trying to apply salvation to those whom the Father has not chosen, that puts the persons of the Trinity at total odds with one another. It's blasphemy. I have no hesitation to say any view of salvation is blasphemy. God is the one who wills and works for his great purpose. And I have no apologies of saying that whatsoever. So to wrap up and summarize, I want to leave you with three things and a final comment. Number one, this should leave you like the Apostle Paul. Knowing this about God should leave us in greater doxology that God, we're going to sing it in a minute, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's love? Can you, do you ever think about that when we sing that? And can it be? That's the heart of the believer. The believer can barely believe that he's been saved. Do you know what the hypocrite does? The hypocrite, God owes me. Of course I'm saved. The real, the believer can barely believe it. He can barely believe it. And it lifts us up in praise and adoration. Number two, it should lead you to a greater sense of the assurance, knowing that God loved you before the foundation of the world. And that love cannot be thwarted because it started with God. It will end with God. It's a bit like what God said to Israel, isn't it? Israel, I love you. Why? Because I love you. Not mighty, but I loved you. And number three, and this may be, if some of you do not believe in this doctrine, which are the doctrines of grace, this may be uh, a little bit confusing to you, but 
this, the third thing it should leave you to do, it should encourage you in evangelism. But God's got his people, they'll be saved, won't they? Listen to me, friends. We do not know who the elect are. God has said, go and preach the gospel to all creation. And Jesus promises this, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Every time you go out there, it doesn't depend on anything you do. God is the one who is at work and his word shall not return void. Praise God. That's the God we serve, not a weak beggar, but a powerful saviour. And lastly, if you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, I can't presume that everybody has here. And you maybe have heard the argument here today saying, well, if I'm not one of the elect, how can I come to Christ anyway? If I'm not one of the elect. Brethren, we are not told to contemplate our election before we come to Christ. Nowhere will you find that in scripture. We are told to come and the offer is open universally. And the one who comes to Christ, he will by no means cast out. And if you go to Christ because you want him, then the spirit of God is in you, is in working your life because he cannot, nobody can come to the father and nobody can come to Jesus Christ unless the father who sent draws him. So if you're here today and you think, well, maybe I'm not elect. Maybe there's no point in me coming. I say this, come to Christ. Come to the fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel veins and the sinner plunged into the flood lose all their guilty stains. Nobody who's been to Christ has ever been turned away. So if you're not in Christ, come to Christ. And if you are in Christ, let us raise the roof, praising him for his sovereign grace. Amen.